Welcome back to part two of the Hennessy Files podcast, proudly presented by Aloha Surf Manly. Now, I want to talk about the next year. You end up runner-up, I think, the next year, and you're going for the world title again in Hawaii. And it was one of the worst years when it came to swell in Hawaii. And I saw an interview with you, and you said something that's very smart, and people who know the industry would get it more than anyone else, is that to be good at pipe, you have to do the time. Like you were saying, like, you'd go out there for two or three hours, you get two waves, and there's a pecking order. And it is the wave of all places in the world where you have to do the time, isn't that right? Oh, definitely. I think... Um it's different now to what it was then. I think Hawaii was a lot more, uh, I think it was more aggressive back in the 80s and 90s. And it was more, there was, there was probably, it was definitely more violent. You know, you could, the Hawaiians now are more traveled and they're, you know, they're, 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 all, they're a beautiful culture, beautiful people. But back then there was so many guys in the water who were, fucking, you look at them sideways and they want to punch your lights out, literally. And that happened, um, you know, it happened to a lot, of, a lot of people. It happened to girls, it happened to guys. And that's just the way it was. If you're a Howley and you're from Australia, um, you definitely had to be doing your time out there and you had to do a lot of time. Um, so like even to, like Tom surfed pipe a lot, but you know, he, you wouldn't, he didn't surf it as much as you would have thought he would have to get it as good as he did. And I think, um, you know, it's a, it's a tough place to compete at. You know, like, like I said then, you just don't get the opportunity to, to do the time out there. And that year, it was eight, like 87, that was the best year I had on tour. I won seven, seven events. And that's still equal now with, I think, Kelly and... Curran, I think. And Curran, yeah, no one's ever got past that. Yeah, so I won seven events, but that year was a weird year and then I'd either win, I'd win and then get last in the next one. Win, then get last in the next one. It was just such an up and down year. And it came down to that last event of the year. And, um, you know, I had, I think I had Oki in my first round heat. He was a wild card, so... If you're gonna, you know, he'd won pipe before, you know, we're the same age, um, so it was it was a weird situation to be in, in to have Oki first round. And I remember going out there. I remember thinking, I've got to catch the biggest wave I can get, to prove myself. So I, was, I didn't actually compete like I would normally compete, where you just chip away and get scores and build on, on them. You know, I basically waited half the heat for the biggest wave of the heat, got it pulled in, put my hand up over my head when I was coming out to claim it and got fucking karate chopped, got my head taken off by the lip. So um, that was the last, first and last claim I ever did in a heat, I think. So um, yeah, it was a learning curve. Yeah, pipe is a hard join. I remember I did an interview with Otto, like Kai Otten, not that long ago, and people say that his strength was his barrel riding, definitely places like Chopes and stuff, that's where he was at his best. And he said he could never quite work it out there. He said it just didn't happen for him at pipe. And he said it's not... A thing that I didn't want it to or couldn't read the wave it just didn't happen yeah I think it's it's an unusual wave in that when there's four guys out there it's easier than when there's two and the year I lost to Oki it was it was man on man then and everyone used to think how good is it going to be to have man on man heat at pipe it was so boring because most of the guys on the tour were just lost out there you know there, there was you know that you have your exceptions but um, all the Hawaiians knew what was going on but I think the Australians in particular apart from a few were pretty much lost out there and pipe looks like a pretty small condensed takeoff but when you're out there it's like a bloody football field it's still quite a big area so um you know there's a lot of waves so you really got to know what waves to get and you need to position yourself accordingly you know yeah i think a lot of guys found it pretty tough 
I want to go back and chat about like the eighties and nineties when it comes to like the halcyon days of surfing. I felt like that era excited the sporting public of Australia and probably around the world, especially with like the coverage of wide water sports and just the whole coverage of the sport. Did you feel it went to that next level when you came on tour? Yeah, I think um, I think Tom Carroll definitely had a part in you know raising the profile of surfing in Australia, and it was before phones, before the internet. So people's fix of surfing was when the surfing contest came to town. You'd read about it in the magazines, but they were like three or four months late by the time they came out. So that was, as a grummet, that was your only fix with surfing. You never got to actually see it in person. And I think, um, you know, the newspapers, the TV, they used to report on it much more than they do even today in a lot of instances because that was their only fix. When the best surfers in the world came to town, they lapped it up. So, um, yeah, I, I think as a, as a sport, it was definitely reached a, like it was definitely for its, where it sat in the pecking order of world sports in the 80s and 90s, it was, or particularly the 80s, it was, it was a big sport. You know, you could walk down the street and everyone knew who you were. But I think from the 90s, it sort of... It, dwindled out a bit unless dwindled. you're in, inside the bubble. Yeah, and I think once the ASP actually sort of moved to more of a Californian-based organisation. It really lost that, you know, the Australian part of it and uh, it, surfing just, its profile dropped. I remember as a child or as a grommet, I would actually, to see you guys compete at, say, somewhere like South Africa, I would have to wait until these videos used to come out in Video Easy and you could get, you'd get the whole <laughs> comp on a video you remember them yeah yeah it was oh i think sarge was the first person doing the world tour and it was sarge's scrapbook so he videoed it and and then he sold it it and sold it so he was probably ahead of his time but that was yeah as as a grummet that was your only fix you know it's so different now everything's like real time whatever happens now is we can watch it now so it was sort of uh, a surf a surfer's dream i guess to to see what you see now so people talk about, you know, Damien Hartman, your nickname, the Iceman. Where did that consistent competitive streak come from? Because you were probably over generations, you were probably in the top 5% of people who were consistently in that top five in the world. You went through a seven-year period where you didn't fall out of there. No, I think, um, and that was my strength. I was, I was consistent. And I think the way, the way they used to judge surfing events when I first started was best four waves. So best four waves in 25 minutes is pretty hard. You know, now it's best two. And then it went to best three, then best two. And I think when they actually decreased the waves they scored, it actually raised the performance. So it was almost like a, it was like a maths equation. You knew that if you got four sixes, you're probably going to win most heats. So a lot of guys struggled to, to, to figure that out. And I think all the best competitors, you know, I look at Karen and Barton and, the guys who were renowned competitors, they were all consistent, you know, all great surfers, but they were cons- consistent as well. Um, so it was, it was just, it's, it was just different then. It's evolved, and I think, um, you know, I grew up. That's how they used to sur- score surfing events, best four waves. But when I very first competed, when I was a gr- like 12 years old, it was best six waves. So you couldn't waste any time. You knew you had to get out there and just get going and get your wave count up and 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 be busy your second world title talk us through that year did you feel from the outset of that year that it was game on in your second world title race i think i think after losing my first world title the year i won seven events i was 
I was worn out after that year. I felt like that year I gave it 100%. And I think it took me a year to recover um, and actually get focused again. So in, in 91, when I won again, yeah, I, I, was, I was focused on winning another world title, but it sort of crept up on me. And um, you know, I went through the whole year. It, like I felt like it was probably the third best year I had on tour. Yeah. I felt like the, the year first world title I won and the sec- year I got second were the best years I had. That year, it was sort of the same. I'd win events and then get last, and it wasn't a very consistent year. And that year, no one really, you know, Brad Gerlach got second. I wouldn't have thought through the year that he was had a great year either. I just felt like I'd had great years and this one wasn't one of them. Um, and it just sort of crept up on me. I won it in Hawaii, it was at Pipe. Um, had some pretty tough heat. It was a big year at Pipe. You know, the first heat I had was Second Reef Pipe. Had Johnny Boy Gomes. Um, had a, a really tough heat. Johnny Boy Gomes growling at me, telling me not to take off. So it was a it was a, a really intimidating sort of event. Um, and I remember it, it was such a weird year that I didn't really pay any attention to know what I had to do to win Pipe. I just went there, I was going to surf. I wasn't going to get caught up in all the other shit going on and where I was placed. All I knew is I had to get through every heat of pipe to win. And it wasn't, I actually won the world title and no one even knew that day, myself included, until that night I got a call from Al Hunt who said, rang up and said, you won the world title. So there was no like the, the, fanfare and stuff the, on the beach. The ASP didn't even calculate it prior <laughs> to see what everyone had to do to win the world title. That's, that's how that's what a weird year it was so every other year they did but that year no one even really i was it was bizarre to get a phone call at six o'clock at night on a landline because there was no mobiles from al hunt saying you won the world title i was like bullshit so i actually didn't believe it i thought he was pulling my leg till i got to the beach the next day and everyone was like oh yeah you know you won the world title i was like okay so let's chat about the tour back in those days compared to what they now call the WSL Dream Tour. Give us an insight into the tough locations you guys had to compete at if you wanted to win a world title. Because I'm thinking that is very, very different to the perfect ways they get to surf in 2020. Well, I think now you've got 12 events. Then you had, there was almost an unlimited amount of events. So you had A, B and C grade events in yeah. a couple of the years. And there was an event on every week. So you basically lived out of a suitcase and you turned up at a location on a Tuesday Contest started on a Wednesday, finished on a Sunday. Didn't matter what the waves were like, whether it was two foot or 20 foot, you're out there. So events only ever got called off, I think twice, when the surf was dead flat and it was unrideable. But we pretty much lived out of a suitcase. But the best part of it was, it was the same group of guys traveling the world, basically sharing rental cars, sharing hotels, on the same planes together. And it was almost like, You'd finish the contest on a Sunday, everyone would get on the drink Sunday, you'd leave Monday morning, hungover, get to the next place, everyone would start fresh and do, and do it all again. So in terms of a lifestyle, and a, it was a party. And there was obviously some guys who partied harder than others. Um, if you were in the events, normally you... Oh, give us, give us the insight. Who was the biggest party? Oh, animals? without doubt, the biggest party animals were Rod Kerr, John Shamuka, oh, Brad Gerlach. There was just like a posse that everyone, they were infectious. Everyone wanted to hang with that posse. And they, I think we were all really lucky to get away with what we did then. Because like we'd be in jail if we did what we <laughs> did then now. Um, yeah, but we had an amazing time. Like 
people say, oh, wouldn't you rather be competing now while the money's good? No, like the money's great now, but hey, we had the best time. You couldn't buy the times we had. I want to ask you this question. If you threw this current, your sort of generation compared to this, and knowing the way the actual tour is set up with the venues, who would be the server that would be most likely to succeed from your era into now, knowing the waves they surf? Who was that guy you'd think, you know what, he would absolutely go ballistic, where back in the day he would not have gone that good because of the kind of conditions you had to surf? You know what, I reckon it's, uh, I don't think it had changed that much at all. I think you might have, you'd have the odd underground guy that, you know, was a pipe specialist or, you know, excelled in really hollow lefts yep. or rights. But overall, a lot of those guys who are specialists in one type of wave, they're terrible competitors. So even though you, you know, you, you got guys, you know, I look at um, someone like Bruce Irons at Chopu, incredible surfer but probably never lived up to expectations at somewhere like Chopu or... So I, I don't think it'd be that, that different. I think the, the guys... The same guys would be doing the same stuff, right? The same guys would be doing the same stuff. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it'd be that different. Now, I want to talk about your relationship with Bells. Yeah. You've been there as a competitor, you were the contest director, you've won it twice, and in the two finals, you beat both Barton and Tommy. Talk us through your relationship with Bells Beach. Oh, well, I think Bells was the first... That was the first time I ever really got exposed and saw how a sur professional surfing event operated. And I was 16, still at school. Um, Al Hunt was one of the judges at Bells. Um, he's a local Narrabeen guy. Him and Greg Anderson, just, I saw him at the beach one day. They said, you want to come to Bells? We're going this afternoon. So I rang my dad and said, hey, can I go to Bells? He said, yeah, no worries. You can go for a week, that's it. So got in the car, went to Bells with those guys um, and that was the most amazing trip I ever had like still one of the best trips I've ever had we stopped at every McDonald's from <laughs> from Narrabeen to Bells uh, Al used to love McDonald's um, got to Bells and I was staying with all my heroes I was staying with, with Simon Anderson uh, Mike Newling, Cole Smith there was a massive posse of Narrabeen guys we had this crazy house with Sean Thompson and Potts staying upstairs and got there, way, it was probably the best year I've ever had at Easter at Bells. Amazing surf, surf everywhere was good. Three swells in two weeks. And all we did was just surf and, and drink. And it was, um, you know, that's when you, there was grummet, of, grummet abuse. So we got a pretty hard time from the older guys. Basically, we'd go surfing all day with them. They'd pull up in the car, they'd get a carton of beer on the way home. They'd just walk inside with the carton of beer they tell us to take their weddies off the roof of the car, hang them out, get the boards out of the car. We'd walk inside, they'd all be sitting around the lounge and they'll go, Oliver oh, Tui's new, Oliver VB. And then we had to get them their beers, hand them their beers. <laughs> and then they expected us to cook dinner. I was like, I was 17, I didn't know how to boil water, let alone cook dinner. So uh, it, was a, it, was a pretty, it was a pretty funny trip. Um, there was a lot of stories that you probably couldn't tell from that trip. But uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty good. And that, so that was the first time I ever really, I, I got there, I was competing in the junior circuit and there was, I was an alternate in the event. Al put my name down and I was, um, I think I surfed my first heat at Bells at 16. It was like four to six foot, really good bowl. Got the call like literally a minute before the heat. Hey, someone hasn't turned up. Chuck this jersey on, you're out there. Paddled out there in board shorts at Easter. And uh, I actually didn't catch a wave of my heat. I just 
couldn't figure it out and never surfed bells at that point and did not catch a wave um and i think simon had won bells what was that that was 82 so Simon had won bells the year before and um that year it was mr and tom carroll in the final and we all did yeah, that was the days we could take beers down the rocks and it was a real party atmosphere for the final so to be li literally 10 yards away from where those guys were finishing their waves with a huge Australian crowd. I just got caught up in the atmosphere. I was like, how good is this? That's what I want to do. I want to be a pro surfer. That looks like the best lifestyle. I've had the best trip of my life. Now I'm watching these guys surfing good, fun waves, getting paid for it. And, you know, it was an ideal lifestyle. So it sort of really sowed the seeds for what I wanted to do. Talking about ringing the bell, they talk about how special that is. For you, was it the ultimate, other than the world titles, to win that event with your association with Rip Curl and that being such an iconic location? Well, I think after going there that year when I was 16 and seeing it and seeing MR win the bell and seeing Tom Carroll get second and seeing what a big part of Australian surfing Bells was, two events I wanted to win. It was Bells and the Gunston 500. And South I, the, Africa. I, I wanted to win that because I idolised Sean Thompson. I think he won it like four or five times. And same thing, I only ever read about it in the mags, but I just remember seeing that trophy. Like Bells was the ultimate. It's the only trophy in world surfing that everyone wants. You know, everyone wants to win every event, but everyone wants that trophy. And to actually get up there and ring the thing, it's such a special feeling. I want to talk about Sean Thompson. He was one of your idols. We had the pleasure, he was in Sydney last year, right? And big man came walking down towards our board riders tent. And it was incredible to see those young, our young kids engage with a guy they had really no idea. I, they asked me who, I said, this guy is a legend of our sport. Yeah. And he was the most incredible, humble human being I'd ever met. He sat there for like an hour and a half, talked to every grommet. It yeah. was incredible. Took photos. Yeah, he's a great he's a great person, you know. And he, he was when I was a grummet, I was growing up. He was the renowned. He was known as the best tube rider in the world. And you used to see the you go to the, watch the surf movies of him at Jeffrey's Bay, and it was great. That was it'd blow you away, you know. It was to meet someone like that was your dream. And uh, like you said, he's he's such a humble guy, but he's you know I think he's in his sixties now. He's still ripping, um, and he's just a he's a great person. And uh, I was lucky enough to get to travel with him and Barton. Um, to a few events and Barton was sponsored by Sean's company in Instinct and uh, he was the same then you know but he was such a personable person we used to call him the boss he was he, you know, he'd always go where's the pelican because he'd call Barton the pelican because of his nose <laughs> and uh, we'd call him the boss so um, yeah he's a good guy so Dorma you were famous for rolling with the full deck grips of course your association with the Aloha surf team which back in the day was a very dominant force give us an insight into uh you know your association with the great Greg Clough and who was your shaper during that period well Cluffy I used to ride McCoy's up until I was about 18 then I went to that was the first year I went to Hawaii was with Barton and I took some McCoy's over there they were unusual to say the least single fins you know, by that stage, everyone was well and truly riding thrusters. And I borrowed a couple of Barton's boards that um, I think I just surfed them just small waves around Waimea, just little reef breaks around there. And they were inc they went incredible. And it was, um, I got back and I ordered a couple of boards off Cluffy when I was about 18. And from that point on, I yeah, I always rode um, Aloha's. So basically Cluffy was my shaper right through my whole career. And... Uh, you know Barton was there for quite a bit of that he left in the end and started doing other things but 
yeah, so I was sort of, the, I guess, the main Aloha guy when, when Barton left. Um, and I basically, I used to go and sit and stand in the shaping bay and watch Cluffy shape most of my boards. You know, back then there was no pre-shapes. It was all done by hand. So Great shaper. Incredible shaper, incredible guy. Um, uh, there was always this funny story that I'd always, Cluffy found it really frustrating, I think, in the end when I would go and watch him shape my boards because he'd finish it and go, ha have, a look at have a look at it, what do you reckon? I would go, oh, a little bit more off there, a little bit more off there. <laughs> and it was probably painful. It would take another hour for him to shape the board, so I kept going, and he'd take a bit off, and I'd go, no, just a little bit more off there. It's just a little bit thick. And it, so I can imagine if I was in his shoes, I'd be going, fuck this guy. What's he, what's he know? He's torture. But the, I remember the best board I ever had from him was the 101, the seven events on. And I felt so bad because I'd tortured him for so long, telling him to cut, take more off it, that he actually went out of the shaping bay to take a phone call. And I got the surf former and started shaping the rails. <laughs> and that was the board. <laughs> and that was the board. And um, when he came back, he was like, what? What did you do? I said, I just took a little bit more off there. And so he went, shit, it's pretty rough. So he had to clean it up. So that uh, it was you know, one of those funny things. I think it was still the best board I ever had that you know, we shaped together. And what about the grips? Like you, VL, was that just a... Well, it was a local company, Bill McClausland and a couple other guys that started Gorilla Grip. They were from the Northern Beaches. And I guess myself, Tom and Barton were the only guys, you know, we were the main sort of competitive surfers on the northern beaches so they gave it to us to try and uh, originally it was a little pocket block thing that was just like a little kick pad at, at, at the, the back. back yeah and then it evolved into a you know tail pad and then it turned into a full deck grip so um yeah me and barton i think winton we all, all had our own signature deck grips and never used wax and i used that for quite a bit of my, you know most of my career and they were they were good but you could never surf in board shorts to rip your stomach off so the funny thing is now that all these years later where front grips never got used, they're now they're back and all the kids are using them. And it's, they, I crack up when they, um, it's like kids discover it. I was like, look at that board. And I've got one of the old ones hanging on the wall. And I'm like, well, look at that. That's, um, that's what it was in the 80s. That's 80s, early 90s. So it's not new. So in your career, right, you, you go through the 80s in the 90s and like... Towards the back end, I think it was like 95, 96, you didn't have a good year. But we're talking like 10 years on tour, which is a long time mentally, mentally and physically to keep yourself in tune. But talk about that. Is it 97 you come back with a vengeance and you finish like in that top 10? In fact, I think you finished six. Yeah. How was that? Was that something that you were determined to get back to where you were? Um, pretty much. I think that... The hard part about competing when I was on tour was you, it was hard to have a year off. If you had a year off, you had to start from scratch again, go through the trials and do all that. So I guess for a couple of years after you know, being in the top five for seven years or whatever, I sort of lost interest. And I didn't want to actually do it for a few years, but I, had to, I kept doing it because that was my career. That was my only source of income. It's the only thing I knew. So... Um, I kept doing it and then after having a couple of years where I sort of just I guess partied a little bit hard and got led astray by Matt Hoy and his, oh. cro his cronies um, you know I sort of found, I got back and sort of found the passion again and I think 97 had a good year sort of gave it 100% and then after that 
Barton was retiring and we sort of had a testimonial. I was on the fence whether I was going to keep going or not. I was like, yeah, we'll have a testimonial. I'll retire. And then uh, after it, I thought, no, I'm just going to do one more year. So I did another year. And the last few years on tour, I did pretty well. I think I, when I actually did retire, I retired halfway through the year. At, um, I wanted to surf. I wanted to surf Fiji, so I basically stayed on tour because I knew that was coming on to tour. So I surfed Fiji, um, and I was I was in the top ten. Uh, then I went to Huntington Beach, got to Huntington Beach, and it was Andy Irons was ringing me because everyone knew that I was on the fence. What didn't know whether I was going to keep going, and Andy's dad rang me. He was like, "If you if you want to retire now, we'll we'll give you your first place or your sorry your your, your prize money to turn up." And I was like, well, I'm in California. I'm probably going to compete. And I got to California, got to Huntington. It was two foot onshore and shit. And I just went, oh, I can't do it. I just couldn't get motivated to, to compete. So I rang Andy and said, you can have my spot. So And that's how he got in. That's how he got in. Because he, he was the first guy that missed out on the WQS the year before. So he was basically on tender hooks every event, hoping someone was injured or didn't show up and he'd get their spot. So, um, yeah, so he got my spot and he went on to compete that year, had a good year, and the rest is history. In 1998, you go to France and you win Hossiger, right? Yeah. How special was that? Because that's your last major that, win on tour. That was my last win. And at that time, I remember paddling out for the final. I remember in that, in that event, going, I, can win. I knew I could win that event. And I remember paddling out in the final. Pat O'Connor. Pat O'Connor. I remember consciously thinking, this is probably the last opportunity I'm going to have to win an event. I remember thinking that. And, uh, you know, Pat was surfing really well. There was one, it came down to basically one wave. And we were, neither of us had priority. I, was, I paddled around the back of him, basically did the ice fan thing, got the wave of the heat, got an 8.6 and won the heat. And I remember that was after my dad had died. So to me, it was, I really wanted to win an event to basically dedicate to him. So that was... Um, I knew it was the last chance I was going to get, and I and I basically there was no way I was going to win, lose that final. Knowing how competitive you are as a surfer, did that sort of really enhance the fact you thought, you know what? Even in the later stage of my career, I still have the skill set to beat anyone in the planet. Yeah, like the last heat I surfed in was against Oki at Cloudbreak, and it was sort of sort of fitting that you know we grew up we were the same age, we we competed together right through our junior ranks, right through our whole careers. And, you know, I remember going out to cloud break. No, actually, I took the wrong board, paddled out there on a 6-2 instead of my small board. It was only a really small cloud break. And I was, I was, I was, I could have won that heat easy. There was one wave I got barreled on, got clipped at the end. Um, but, it, you know, I think I only just lost. But I still felt I could beat anyone on the day, um, anywhere, right through to the, the day I finished. Was that emotional, that event, that cloud break event? Because you basically made the decision, really, that you knew that you weren't going to continue. I, well, I, no, it wasn't emotional because I'd sort of made the decision, but I was still on the fence. Oh. So I hadn't made the decision 100%. I was, so, and that's why I still went to Huntington for the next event was because I would plan to compete there. It was probably more when I got to Huntington that I was over it. But, you know, I, there was no emotion at all because I felt like when I got to Huntington, I 100% knew that I couldn't get motivated to paddle out in two foot surf that was the time was well that time was now was probably past it 
Within your career, what I love about sport, I love the rivalries. Outside of yourself and your own rivalries, were, were there any in the 80s and 90s just such intense rivalries that you just went, wow, that is insane? Was there any blokes who just really didn't get on and didn't like each other and loved to beat each other? Oh, probably Potts. Potts was just... Against everyone? I was, <laughs> no, no, I, me and Potts had this rivalry. We were just we were fierce competitors. And um, I would almost say when we were competing, we weren't, we definitely weren't friends. You know, we're mates now, but um, at the time we were enemies. You know, like he would have done anything to beat me and I would have done anything to beat him. You know, Potts, he's, he was an aggressive competitor. You know, I, nothing ever used to rattle me. I'd do my own thing and, you know, you used to have people try and talk to you and put you off your game. Potts was, um, he'd growl at you and sit beside you and splash water at you and spit and grunt and... He was just a he was just a ruthless competitor. So I actually I never enjoyed competing against him because I just knew he'd be in your face and be a pain in the ass. So um, and I'm sure he'd say the same thing. But uh, you know, my rival rivalries were as intense with say Barton and and Tom, but we respected each other more. I think with Potts, you almost felt like there was no respect. It was um, a lot tougher. I want to dig into the contest directing role that you took on after you retired from surfing. What made you want to put yourself in that position where you had to deal with all the bullshit that goes on with having to, uh, you know, make everyone on tour happy? How did you find that being a fellow competitor and then jumping into that arena? Was it your association with Ripka or was it something you really wanted to do? I just looked like an easy gig from the outside. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but when I was doing it, I think most people... the role of the contest director was actually you hadn't didn't have to do anything because you knew no matter what you were surfing on a Wednesday to a Sunday, and you were starting at eight o'clock till four o'clock. That was the way it was. So it wasn't until like the later years on the tour, when there was waiting periods, that it got a bit more, more subjective, and you ha- actually had to pick the eyes out of it. So I was still even when I finished competing, I was still going to Bells every year to watch. You know, I, it was just like a tradition that I do at Easter. So I, I'd enjoy going to bells at easter still getting um, sponsored by rip curl and rip curl back then all the events would actually they'd employ their own contest directors and it was normally someone from within the company so with billabong it was luke egan or rabbit um quicksilver it was like you know rod brooks it was someone that worked for the company so that sort of made sense that the rip curl events i sort of that's the role i stepped into and then they started the search events I was like, how good is this gig? You're going to be able to go to be the contest director at all these iconic waves that you're probably not going to normally get to go to. Um, so it was a good, it was a good gig, and I enjoyed it. It was, um, it was a tough one. Uh, the only hard part was dealing with surfers when they didn't want to surf, and like being there and competing myself, I thought I could basically probably get a, swing them around a lot, and they, they'd respect you a bit more because <laughs> no you'd been chance. there and done it. But that wasn't the case. It was. And what it made me realise was that us as surfers, we're all so individual. Everyone looks after their own interests and it's a selfish sport. If the conditions suit you, you want to surf. If they don't suit you, you don't want to surf. It didn't matter whether it was two foot or 10 foot. I found it really frustrating when guys, you know, I think we're, we had the search event at, um, at uh, Uluwatu and it was like four to six foot really good Ulus 
Um, it was the tide came in, the peak got a little bit weird, so we called it off for a couple of hours, and then it just turned on. The tide got low enough, started firing. I was like, we're starting in 30 minutes. Parko walked out, went, oh no, we shouldn't be going out. It's shit. Like, mate, it's four to six foot. It's pumping. He, so any, anyway, I convinced him to paddle out. He was the first heat. First wave, he gets a nine. Fully barreled, spat out, and everyone was like, yeah, it is pretty good. <laughs> and it, but it, it, it was like that everywhere. You know, it, it could be, you know, if we say, without naming names, if it were, you were a small guy and you excelled when it was two foot, if it was four to six foot, you'd be going to call it off. But when it was two foot, that same guy was going, let's get out there, it's pumping, let's go. You can never, like, appease everyone in our sport because, no. like you said, it's an individual sport. It's an individual sport, and I think it's, um, it's human nature. You, you, want to, you want to compete when it suits you. Before we wrap up, I want to say we're sitting in your shop at Narrabeen. It's an incredible shop. So if you're out there and you listen to the podcast and you want to come down and check out, this would be one of the biggest shops in the Southern Hemisphere. It's got an amazing range of boards. And this is your life these days, eh? The, uh, the shop and Narrabeen board riders? Yeah, pretty much. Um, when I finished, well, while, while I was competing on tour, I always had an interest in surf shops. So um, even, for, you know, even though I didn't have an active, I didn't work in them actively, I always had a shareholding in surf shops and when I finished competing sort of went into a few different businesses and found my feet in retail and that's pretty much what I've done ever since so um, you know I've got a passion for surfing still I still surf every day it's good fun selling boards and weddies and it's still it's good fun giving people a stoke hopefully that um, that I got when I was a kid when I walked into a surf shop it's funny you say that because when I talk to the boys from Narrabeen, because the opens are so strong in Narrabeen, they go, oh, Duma's always still there. He's so competitive. He loves it. Yeah. So like, you still like putting on the rashy? Yeah, yeah. I still compete in all the board riders, still compete in the opens. So uh, I haven't won one for a while, but I sort of make most finals. So it's, um, I've got nothing to lose. You know, for those guys, you know, they're at the top of their game and to be beaten by a 54-year-old, it's be it'd be pretty uh, humbling, I think. So um, I enjoy it. You know, I'm still competitive, and I love paddling out there against Cooper and Geordie and Davey and all the grummets. Well, mate, it's been a pleasure having you on. You are one of the most iconic legends of our sport, and uh, they called you the Ice Man. You had 19 victories on tour and two world titles you should be very proud and i'm stoked that you actually was able to come onto my potty mate thank you very much no worries Timmy. thanks for having me the hennessy files podcast series proudly presented by aloha surf man thanks for listening and don't forget to check out next week's episode